Please silence all electronic devices. I'm sorry, folks. I don't trust them, and our folks don't trust them. There is a great deal of, of, of overreaction from those who are criticizing this legislation. They will see me in court. You know, if the General Assembly were really trying to do a power grab, there's a lot of things the General Assembly could do, and we weren't. And they don't have a very good track record there. Any further discussion or debate? From the Museum of Natural Sciences in downtown Raleigh, it's Thursday, March 22nd, 2018. This is the WUNC Politics Podcast. I'm Jeff Tabiri. On this episode, a conversation about amateurism, firearms, and other various and sundry musings with a former justice on the state Supreme Court, Bob Orr. Your Honor, how are you? I'm great. Delighted to be here, Jeff. Serious question to start. Do you ever miss people uh, rising when you enter a room? <laughs> uh no, I don't miss that, and you know, but people are still kind enough to refer to me as judge, okay. so that that makes me feel good. Although we have a new golden retriever puppy, and we named him the little judge. Ah, <laughs> yeah, I, li- yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, just before we started, you and I were talking uh, about the possibility of a blue wave, or the likelihood, or unlikelihood of a, of a blue wave here in North Carolina uh, in 2018. You write a, a weekly column for the Charlotte Observer, and just to pull the curtain back a little bit and talk um, about. Just to extend the conversation we were just having, a blue wave in North Carolina. You're not too warm on that theory as of this point. Why not? Well, I think it's problematical. It's When you look at the districts, whether they're legislative or congressional districts, even with all the litigation uh, and the losses sustained by uh, the Republicans who drew those districts, they're still predominantly leaning towards uh, Republican victories in those. Uh, The money will be following the power, and so the uh, Republican legislative leadership committees, the more powerful uh, incumbents who are Republicans will be substantially better funded than the Democrats. And candidly, I think the, the Republican focus on social issues has been put a little bit on the back shelf uh, in favor of more uh, traditional uh, issues like teacher salaries, Mm -hmm. pre-K funding, tax relief. Uh, uh, HB2, nobody's talking about HB2. I did also want to ask you about one of the, to me, one of the stories of this week um, was a firearms proposal from the Democrats. I'll give a little context, then I'm going to throw you on the spot with something here. But I I thought of you this week when this happened, because I knew we were going to be doing this interview. And there were five Democrats at the legislature who rolled out these these gun proposals um, on Tuesday. I don't know if they were necessarily mirroring, but they were very similar to what Governor Cooper had rolled out last week or um, called for last week. We're talking about uh, raising the age on assault rifles, expanded background checks on assault rifles, banning bump stocks, this this possible restraining order to people that might be a threat, uh, uh, implementing a call center, more money for school resource officers and psychologists, uh, all of those things. Right. and one of the things that did strike me candidly, as well as several other reporters and other people I heard from, was that these Democrats got up, talked about the proposal, and they said, this is not a partisan issue. But of course, there were only five Democrats at right. the podium. There wasn't a Republican there. And, you know, one of our jobs is just to question and poke holes in, in, in some of what we're seeing. And it just seemed like, all right, you know, is this about is this about scoring political points or is this really about an effort to make a policy difference. And it just struck us that there was no Republican up there. So here's my, and I would love for you to react to that to any (laughs) extent that you want to, but uh, my curveball to you is, had you been approached, and I'm assuming you 
weren't approached. Had, had you been approached to, to stand up with a group of Democrats and call for a policy proposal like that, is that something that you would be behind? Personally, uh, I would at, at a minimum say these are extraordinarily important issues that should be considered in a nonpartisan light. And right. so, therefore, I, I'm willing to say let's get those kind of bills introduced, let's send them to committee, let's have uh, hearings on, on these issues, uh, and let's see if we can reach uh, a reasonable compromise or proposals that would improve the safety, not just of the public schools, and, and that's obviously Important. on everybody's but, mind, but uh, as, as they say in the, the jargon, there are all sorts of soft targets out there that uh, the public, including our children and grandchildren, are, are at risk. And so uh, I, I wrote a op-ed piece for the Charlotte Observer uh, a short time back in which I said my, one of my real concerns is that the Republican Party is almost a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, the NRA. And, and and I think that's unfortunate in so many different ways. Not that protection of Second Amendment rights isn't a valid issue or concern, but it seems like we have this unwillingness politically to sit down and say, you know, we have a, a, a real problem in mm -hmm. the country with the kinds of weapons that are out there, the inability of, of law enforcement ATF agents to adequately track and, and, and keep a record of, of who has them, who's buying them. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of issues that we need to discuss in a nonpartisan way, but um, my answer or uh, my swing at your curveball, <laughs> and I never was very good at hitting curveballs, uh, that... Uh, that there needs to be a bipartisan discussion of these kinds of proposals. Uh, and, you know, we've seen some, but they've mainly been focused at the school uh, issue. Have you always been a registered Republican? Were you ever an unaffiliated, or were you a Democrat <laughs> way back in All the right. day? You know, I, I cannot lie on public radio. You can't. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you a little side story in, in doing so. Uh, my great-grandfather, who was a farmer in the, the western part of the state in Henderson County, refused to fight for the Confederacy, went over the mountains to East Tennessee with some other men, and joined the Union Army, and came back in after the Civil War as a Lincoln Republican. And so my family on my father's side have, have always been uh, Republicans. And when I turned 21, back in the day when you had to be right. 21 to register, um, I asked one of my very good friends uh, from Hendersonville and, and at UNC, Jim Fain, uh, who was later Mike Easley's Commerce Secretary. I said, Jim, what should I do? Man, you know, I, I tend to be a Republican. And he, he said, Republicans have no voice in government. You know, just as a practical matter, you need to register as a Democrat. So I actually registered as a Democrat okay. at age 21. Uh, but by the time I got out of the Army, uh, went through law school, and moved to Asheville to practice law, it was clear to me that there wasn't a place for me in the Democrat Party mm -hmm. and that I should be registered as a Republican. And so when I moved to Asheville in 75, I registered as a Republican. 
now four days four decades later does it feel like there's not there's a there's a small place for you within the Republican party I mean has that has that coin kind of flipped for you personally incredibly so and and, and in a very troubling way because <clears throat> I actually worked uh, as an intern for WSOC TV in Charlotte's news department at, at the 65 and 67 uh, legislative sessions, and Republicans were non-entities. I mean, and, and really treated unfairly in so many different ways. And so, the early part of my political involvement was trying to build a Republican Party that was committed to uh, good government and and uh, you know a, a responsible two-party system for the state mm-hmm. and. And when I was first elected to the Court of Appeals in 1988, I was the first Republican elected to a statewide judicial office since 1896. And so I I have felt like, in a lot of ways, I've contributed in a small way to the growth of the Republican Party. But it's a very different party than during the years that I served as precinct and county chairman and uh, worked in a lot of different capacities for the party. I I wonder, is there a place for me Mm -hmm. in the party where people with my sort of old mountain Republican values? Bob Orr is the guest here on the WNC Politics Podcast. Uh, As you mentioned, you did win a statewide judicial race. Uh, You then won four more of them. Three more. Three Three more. more Four of them total. Okay. Um, You were a candidate. You sought the the, uh, the nomination, the Republican nomination for governor in 2008. You did not win that race. Pat McCrory did. Then he went on to defeat, um, or excuse me, in 2008, he went um, on to lose to Bev right. Perdue, and then he won the governorship four years later. Right. Um, and the other order of business quickly is I'll apologize, as I did last week on the podcast, for my uh, persistent cough, which I probably will not be able to edit out of the <laughs> entire 20-minute stretch of the conversation here. Um, so let's uh, let's transition Um March Madness continues tonight. There are four Sweet 16 games. And I want to chat about college basketball with you because um, college athletics and amateurism, and I'm using air quotes and student athletes, more air quotes, uh, is something that you follow closely and are particularly passionate about. And just to get us started, I'm wondering... Why, of all the issues, is this one that you are so involved with or so interested in? It's very ironic because I have been a college sports fan, and particularly a UNC fan, literally my entire life. I mean, I've been to Final Fours, bowl games, between undergrad, working in law school, I never missed a basketball game. I've loved college athletics. And in 2010, when the great scandal first broke at UNC. Fake you know, classes, I, yeah, FAM, all that. Yeah, yeah, well, at that point, it was, you know, Marvin Austin getting some money from an agent. But all of a sudden, all these players were suspended for the first game and subsequent games. And at one point, and I was <clears throat> running the North Carolina Institute for Constitutional Law at that at that time, I read an article about uh, one of the players who had been suspended, Devin Ramsey, uh, and he had been charged with academic fraud and uh, was uh, having to sit out. His career was over, according to the NCAA. And his mother had come down to talk with a reporter, and the story said she was in tears. This couldn't be happening. You know, her son had done nothing wrong. And frankly, I was just interested. And so through a press intermediary, 
I ended up meeting with Devin and his mother. <clears throat> and candidly, I was horrified with what had transpired in depriving this young man of an opportunity to play. And as his mother said, <clears throat> when you see your son's name scrolled across the ticker tape uh, on ESPN's Thursday night football game that he's suspended for academic fraud, there is a huge personal impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I asked, would you like for me to see if I can try and, you know, get this reversed? And ultimately we did, but not without depriving Devin of most of that season and, you know, lots of bad publicity. And the more I learned about the way the NCAA operated, you know, what was happening at UNC to the players, to, uh, it, it really turned me into an advocate for reform and candidly has greatly dampened my enthusiasm for college sports. It's a broken system in which billions of dollars are in play and the relatively small number of, of young men who are the uh, football and basketball talents that produce the money uh, are, are treated for the most part uh, in a lot of ways poorly. Among the teams playing tonight are Kentucky and Michigan. Uh, I would just note that the head coach of the Wolverines, John Beeline, makes $3.3 million. Head coach of the Wildcats, John Calipari, makes <coughs> just about $8 million a year. That's according to an annual database that right. USA Today produces. From a financial standpoint, and I please correct me if I'm wrong, I think I've seen you use the word exploitation before on Twitter. Right. Um, do you have... A proposal, if you could wave your magic wand and, and, and play amateurism god for a day or um, <laughs> strike it right. from what, how, however you right. want to handle it. Financially speaking, what is your proposal? What is your idea to perhaps diminish or remove that exploitation that you and others have talked about? Well, there, there are a range of issues. Uh, you know, one of the big questions is do you compensate that only the teams that are producing revenue so that um you know men's golf women's volleyball don't don't get revenue but i I think those they're broader reform issues there but from a compensation standpoint uh i'm sort of a free market guy hey Mm -hmm. i'm i'm a registered republican you know and so the only individual on a college campus that can't generate money from his or her talents are college athletes. Everybody from the chancellor to the athletic director to uh, professors writing books to talented musicians and actors uh, who are students <clears throat> have the ability to earn money, to have agents represent them. Uh, but if you're an athlete, you lose all your college eligibility uh, it, if you... The NCAA yeah, prohibits Yeah, it's prohibited by the rules. And, and, and and so, you know, uh, one of the things I would do is simply open up. If a car dealership in Raleigh wants to pay an NC uh, State basketball player, you know, $5,000 to do an ad, hey, that, it's a free market. You know, they ought to be able to do that. Uh, and, and so I think it gets a little tougher when you get down into the non-revenue sports. But... Uh, the so-called cost of attendance, uh, which the NCA is, I think they now have a $5,000 cap, mm-hmm. um, 
it is pretty unrealistic for a lot of kids coming out of really low-income families. And let's face it, a lot of the talented uh, kids are minority kids. They come out of uh, backgrounds that don't have a lot of resources. And I hear stories from former players, from uh, coaches about how these kids take their Pell Grant money or they take mm-hmm. their cost of living and they send it home uh, so that their mother can literally feed other members of the family. And so uh, I, I think we just have to be fair, right? Uh, and, and, you know, what that means and how that's determined um, would have to be determined, would have to be evaluated in a lot of different ways. But Mark Emmert, who makes, what, $2 million is running the NCAA, mm-hmm. he says, oh, we are categorically against paying players. Now, see, I think the NCAA wants us talking about paying players because the average fan of college sports finds that offensive. You know, what, what I'm talking about is how do we share the wealth mm-hmm. in some fair way with all of these young men and women who are promoting the universities, uh, feeding the soon-to-be online uh, ACC sports network, you know, that everybody's making money off of. and With the exception of? With the exception of the students. And, you know, then you get to the education. And, and, and so, yeah, some kids get a good education. But if you're coming into Chapel Hill or NC State or a private institution like Duke and you have fairly mediocre grades and, and uh, scores coming out of a rural North Carolina school, um, you're going to struggle competing in college generally. But if you now work that individual 40, 50 hours a week, they miss – you know, three or four days of class to travel to these games. You know, you're putting them in an untenable academic position, which is why you you have the kind of scandal that erupted at, at UNC. But all schools have some way of dealing with the academic difficulties of their athletes because they're of no value if they're not eligible. One more quick follow-up on sure. this, and I, I don't admittedly know a ton about it. I heard him mention it in an interview this week. John Calipari, the coach of Kentucky, mentioned that he offers his his players lifetime scholarships. Now, I don't know the feasibility of that and, and how many uh, players, because, of course, Calipari has a lot of one-and-done guys, right. actually come back and utilize that. Is that something you would be in favor of, Carolina, Duke State? If, if all Division One schools said, hey, we're going to give you a, a lifetime scholarship, meaning you come, you come for two years, you go to – the NFL, the NBA, right. MLB, whatever, and you want to come back when you're 28, 42, 60, and get, right. a, get a degree? Is that, is that feasible? I, I, and- I, I think it is, and I think it's fair. Uh, I mean, what, what UNC's attempting to raise $2 billion, <laughs> you know, of, some of which is going to athletic construction. They're building a $45 million indoor practice facility. I mean, surely we can afford to give these kids that help us win uh, a national championship. Tony Bradley, uh, mm-hmm. you know, left UNC after one year after winning the national championship a year ago. Why shouldn't he be able to come back if he chooses uh, to do that? But one, one of my real concerns is, you know, a, a lot of these young men, and particularly in the women's sports, won't have professional opportunities. 
And so if we're dumbing down their education, if we're watering it down, if we're putting them in majors that are really not going to provide them with good opportunities, and we're putting all this academic pressure because they have to take at least 12 semester hours. And it's tough for them to do any kind of internships, to do all of the sort of normal things that college kids do. I mean, that's one of the key areas. I would say if, if, if a young man can only handle six semester hours during the season, mm-hmm. let them take just six semester hours. If they need to take remedial math at a community college, let them take remedial math at a community college. You know, now, I understand that that goes against the grain of the purity of college amateurism and, and the, the so-called student-athlete. But let's do what's right for these kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, uh, it, it's, it's not that hard, but everybody making money doesn't want to, um, you know, sort of mess with the system. And the the people who are on the short end of it are the kids. And this is how we, you know, you end up with these, you know, this under the table money is by putting all of these uh, unrealistic restrictions on on the students, the athletes. Uh, there is this incentive for people to slip them money uh, in order to, um, you know, get get them to sign with them. Uh, after they leave the school so with a more open honest system a fair system i think you'd do away with a lot of those problems bob orr earned an undergraduate degree at the university of north carolina chapel hill also a law degree from there he will be rooting for uh, the fine institute of syracuse university tomorrow (laughs) night as they take (laughs) on duke it's uh Anybody but Duke, right? ABD, some Carolina. That, that, that's uh, correct. Told yeah, me that yeah we do not, we do not pull for Duke. <laughs> uh, but I have a daughter in graduate school at Clemson, so and they're still in the Sweet Sixteen. So uh, that's one shade of orange I'm willing to enthusiastically embrace. As your tie demonstrates this morning, <laughs> or the, yes, yeah. this morning. Yeah. Uh, transitioning, you were reading a book, and I wanted to let you loose for a moment and right. tell us a little bit about this book you're reading. It's it's uh, it's called Grant. It's a, uh, a biography about Ulysses S. Grant, of course, the general. Right. Um, it's written by uh, Ron Chernoff. <laughs> we we think I, that's we correct. Think, we <laughs> think that's a Ukrainian yeah. pronunciation yeah, yeah, of his yeah, name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there may or may not be some modern-day lessons in this book um, from this Reconstruction period. I, you know, it's, it's a remarkable biography about an individual, Ulysses S. Grant, that that at least in the book they quote several contemporary historians to say he is the most underappreciated uh, president in the history of the United States, and the the part obviously about his rise from um, sort of a checkered early military career, getting booted out, problems with alcohol unable to successfully operate a business and then the civil war breaks out and next thing you know he's you know one of the he ends up the you know commander in chief of the union forces and and wins the civil war um that's all interesting i I love history love civil war history what what i found remarkable though is the portion on reconstruction Mm -hmm. and 
it is so relevant and so useful in the context of race relations in this country today with the ongoing Confederate monument debate, not just in North Carolina, but around, around the country. And what, what I find stunning, uh, thinking of myself as a student of history, of North Carolina history and uh, the like, how little I knew and understood about Reconstruction mm-hmm. and sort of the subsequent suppression of, of the recently freed slaves uh, post-Reconstruction. And Grant, interestingly enough, was a great champion of civil rights. I mean, I, I think uh, that's one of the unique things that I discovered in this book, that in a lot of ways he more than any single person attempted to help the newly freed slaves in their transition um, to freedom and citizenship. But the the violence and hatred and intimidation, particularly in the South, of the, the newly freed black citizens was extraordinary and something that in the history books I read growing up, uh, in the history books I you know, read at UNC, was glossed over, ignored. Uh, it, I mean, it was stunning. And I think in, in reading what happened in Reconstruction and, mm-hmm. and post-Reconstruction, uh, as a Southerner, I, I came away with a far better appreciation for the the mindset of African Americans even today mm-hmm. uh, because truly it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that we really started seeing uh, significant civil rights and there, there was a quote I pulled it out so I could I could read it because okay. I knew we were going to talk about this but Frederick Douglass um, is quoted in in the book about wondering whether uh, abolitions for the black man had actually turned out good. And his quote was, having been freed from the slaveholder's lash, is he to be subject to the slaveholder's shotgun? Hmm. And... The, the history of Reconstruction, which has not been, to my mind, accurately and broadly enough described and talked about, um, was the story of, of voter intimidation. And, and one of the most interesting things was that the backlash was not so much that the black citizens were now free. They weren't slaves, but they had the right to vote. I mean, and I, I found that stunning that the 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 vicious backlash was really against the prospects of black people having the the voting franchise. It's it's a stunning book. Ron Chernoff wrote the book. It is called Grant. If you're looking for uh, some spring reading, Judge Bob Orr likes it a lot. It's not short. Nine hundred and fifty pages. <laughs> You historians in your long books. A few rapid-fire questions to get you out of here on. 
one significant mistake you made as a gubernatorial candidate <laughs> in 2008? Well, thinking that really good ideas could overcome a lack of uh, money to start with. I had the advice of a, a consultant, find a thousand friends who will say they'll give you a thousand dollars each. They don't have, you don't have to um, have them give it to you. Just, and, and I thought, nah, nah, we'll raise. You got to have the money. I didn't have it. Best job you had as a teenager? As a teenager? I, candidly, uh, my freshman year at UNC, and I was a radio, TV, motion picture major. Nice. Uh, I was going to be a sports announcer, not a, <laughs> not a lawyer and judge. Uh, but WSOC TV News in Charlotte, who used to send two full-time reporters to cover the legislature, wow. needed needed an intern. And so I would come over three or four days a week after classes and, and work the legislature, which is how I got interested in law and politics. But it was, I mean, it was fascinating. I literally, as a, a teenager, covered Richard Nixon, Martin Luther King, Klan rallies, uh, the speaker ban. I mean, it was a, a, a remarkable education, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a for a young kid from Western North Carolina. Which elected official in North Carolina gives you the most reason for hope or optimism? <laughs> the current elected officials. A current elected official, <laughs> local, state, yeah. or federal, and you can say none. Uh, um, from a Republican perspective, Chuck McGrady. You know, Chuck obviously uh, is a great conservationist uh, supporter of the environment. I, I think he's a well-reasoned uh, individual, and I don't always agree with him, but he's open uh, open to discussion, and um, I, I have a lot of respect for Chuck. After the next four days of basketball, which four teams will still be playing? <laughs> you know, once, and despite my lack of, uh, you don't <laughs> have a bracket in front of. Well, you. I'm going to say, all right, let let's say Syracuse. That'll make you happy. Hey, I all like right, it. let's say Clemson because that'll make me. I don't even know whether I don't even know bracket. how the brackets. Uh, they would have run. to play each other in the Elite Eight. Would they? All right. So you're well, going to pick Clemson. Then. Yeah, I have to pick Clemson. Uh, uh, Florida State's in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, why not pick Florida State? Uh, go with the ACC. But beyond that, Gonzaga. Where, okay. where do they? They I believe fall. they yeah. play uh, Florida State tonight. Yeah. We can we can um, check on that. I mean, again, this is what happens yeah. when you throw these curveball questions at people. Yeah, I know. Florida State I, and Gonzaga tip I, at ten oh seven tonight. Okay, um, so so realistically, probably Gonzaga. Uh, let's say Gonzaga, Clemson, um, Villanova, Villanova, and uh, who well, is? The, I'll give you the rundown in the. Who, uh, who's the school the out South. of Chicago? Loyola. Loyola. Why not? Why not? What's the little, the sister, you know, that's... 98-year-old sister. I'm going to call her Sister Mary Catherine, but that's not, it's not Mary Catherine. I'm forgetting her name, but yes. How uh, can you pull against a 98-year-old nun? You can't. All right. Loyola, Gonzaga, Clemson, and Villanova. A lot of Catholics in there. (laughs) Tipping your hand here. Bob Orr, a former member of the North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, thanks for thanks for the conversation. This was fun. Yeah, great. Look forward to doing it again sometime. And thank you, as always, for listening to the WNC Politics Podcast. You can 
Uh, subscribe to the program on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Stay up to date on North Carolina political news throughout the week at our website, wunc.org. And uh, we'll do this again next week. For Judge Bob Orr, I'm Jeff Tabiri. Talk to you soon. Call